Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. No one likes to feel rejected. Rejection is associated with a wide range of psychological struggles like depression, low self-esteem, anxiety, and others. However, not everybody who faces rejection experiences these negative outcomes to the same extent. Why is that? How can we explain such variability in how effectively people cope with rejection? Today, in this episode, I explore the concept of rejection sensitivity. Understanding and managing our proneness to feel rejected becomes pivotal because rejection sensitivity often shapes our interactions with others influences our choices, colors our relationships, and impacts our emotional well-being. I interview Dr. Olem Aydog. She's a PhD from Columbia University. Her research area is focused on social personality, and she runs the Relationships and Social Cognition Lab at UC Berkeley. On another note, As we are approaching the end of the year, you may be thinking about your goals for 2024, areas of your life that you want to improve, relationships that you want to work on, and so on. So, if you want to do a live audit and check how you are really living your life and the changes that you need to make, you can go to my website www.thisisdrz.com and download a values-based journal. The values-based journal gives you a 37-page template to understand what your values are and to check how you're living those values in different areas in your life. Usually, every three months or every quarter, I like to assess how I am living my life. And this is an activity that is scheduled in my calendar. Using this journal, I spend time to reflect and look at different areas of my life and answer key questions to check the changes that I need to make, to check how I am relating to my worries, fears, and anxiety, and to check which areas of my life need more attention and more effort for the next quarter. I can honestly tell you that completing this activity on a regular basis over the years has been extremely impactful in who I am today. Imagine for a moment 
how it will be for you if you spend time checking how you're living your life and how you are relating to your internal struggles. Completing the values-based journal not only increases your awareness, but it also shows you the actions you need to take. So I really hope that you go to the website and download this template. Imagine if every three months you pause to check how you are really living your life. And you check whether you are taking action towards becoming the person you want to be or not. Without further ado, let's jump onto the episode and I wish you a great week. Bye-bye. In one of the papers you published, rejection sensitivity has defined as a personality disposition characterized by the tendency to anxiously expect and overreact to rejection, predisposes individuals to respond to social rejection with hostility, and a behavioral pattern that can undermine close relationships. Uh, but I'm curious if you have to um, explain that to the lay audience. How will you talk about rejection sensitivity these days? So um, rejection sensitivity emerges out of real experiences um, uh, of um, early childhood neglect or abuse or, or rejection. Um, and um, these experiences basically lead people to form certain mental representations or expectations about what to expect from other people, right? So if I'm being rejected by um, the very people who are supposed to love me, then I reach two conclusions. One, I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. Um, second, that I can't trust other people, right? Um, <laughs> that I'm likely to be rejected. So that expectation and um, the, the fear that, uh, you know, follows, uh, accompanies that expectation uh, leads people to um, be on the lookout for those cues because this is a rejection sensitivity is a socially learned response, but the underlying um, kind of like um, cognitive and physiological mechanism is part of our general threat system, mm -hmm. right? It's just like being scared of, of um, you know, snakes, let's say, or um, the tiger in the, in the woods when we feel vulnerable, right? So if you think you're potentially in danger, mm -hmm. um, this is the example I always give in my, in, in when I teach about um, rejection sensitivity, you say you're in the jungle, you know there is a, a tiger. Mm -hmm. What do you do? What do, what do people do under uh, those circumstances? They become vigilant. They want to be able to detect where and when the threat is coming from, but it's an ambiguous situation. They can't know if it's going to happen. So they have to actually kind of to protect themselves over perceive. They cannot miss any um, signs. So they go for, it's better to be wrong than to be dead, right? Anything, any sound, anything slightly moving is gonna put them on this like, okay, this must be, this may be the, the lion or the tiger or whatever. So it's the same mechanism. So when you're expecting rejection because you have been uh, rejected in the past and you're in an interpersonal situation where this is kind of like a possibility, 
then you become hyper vigilant. You're focused on relevant cues and you overinterpret because that's what the system relies on. I'd rather be wrong. Oh, it wasn't rejection. Fine. Then to be caught off guard. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you're looking for it, you're going to see it. And because the entire system is um, um, kind of evolved to defend itself, um, the whole defense uh, system is activated even before you perceive rejection, right? Mm -hmm. The moment you're in the in, in, in the jungle and know there may be a tiger, your body is really activated. So when you see the threat, you're going to have a very strong and rapid fight or flight response. So same thing happens with rejection sensitivity. You see rejection, you expect rejection, you see rejection. You were so primed to defend yourself. Mm -hmm. You basically hit back. You know, hostility is one of the, you fight or flight, right? So hostility is one such response. That's why the intensity is exaggerated. And, um, and if it's a force alarm, usually not appropriate to the situation. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have encountered in the work I do with clients who are experiencing either social anxiety or fears of public speaking or fears of social performance, they tend to sometimes anticipate that they are going to be rejected. And then there is misreading of cues. For example, yeah. they can be in a social gathering and they look at someone that that person is looking down and they say, oh, that person doesn't like me. And they quickly play it safe. They engage in safety behaviors. So given that context, if a person is listening to us, what would you encourage them to do if they are prone to rejection sensitivity and they're in a social situation that is activating this threat system and that quite likely may lead them to play it safe by misreading cues, by avoiding? Correct. Uh, that is a that is a good question. Um, we know that emotion regulation skills is very important, mm -hmm. right? Because this is a system imbued with um, high levels of of um, anticipatory anxiety, mm -hmm. and um, so um, construing the situation not as a threat, but or at least not reaching cognitive closure. Oh, I'm certain that this is rejection, but being open to alternative explanation. Yeah, maybe mm -hmm. this person doesn't like me. Maybe this person had a very stressful day um, and it has nothing to do with me. So being open to those um, kinds of alternative interpretations, maybe even before you enter that situation, because in the heat of the moment, once you feel like, oh my God, this person is like dissing me or, you know, shutting me out. Once you have that cognition, it's very difficult to, to um, uh, reverse engineer your reactions. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be very important to enter into situations, uh, actually priming yourself with the possibility that, you know, I want to, before I reach a conclusion, maybe I want to be sure, collect mm -hmm. more data because the Whole rejection sensitivity, insecure attachment. These are all kind of like the theories we have in our minds, right? Yeah. That we impose onto the to the world. 
we're not collecting actual data from the world. We're interpreting it. We're filling in the gaps using those schemas, those mental models, expectations. So if you can stop yourself filling in, filling in the gaps uh, automatically, but you know, enter into the situation, acknowledging, you know, maybe I reach these conclusions too fast. You know, I'm gonna give people the benefit of the doubt, slow down. So that's one. That's one method. Um, it's called, you know, reappraisal, um, cognitive reappraisal. But I think it's more important to do it even before, like preemptively, um, before you go into a situation. Um, um, because it's rather difficult to activate that, those cognitions in the heat of the moment. Uh, another thing we are actually testing in the lab right now is um, uh, metacognitive knowledge. Mm -hmm. right? The question is like, if we tell people who are rejection sensitive, look, um, first of all, we don't wanna uh, um, not validate rejection sensitive people's concerns and experiences because at the end of the day it is based on actual experience but the irony is that they become creators of that experience along the way because so the extent that they overinterpret, they overreact even when the rejection wasn't intended in a situation they actually do get rejected because people don't want to be with them you know, mm -hmm. because they're kind of like jealous, you know, hostile, unpredictable, etc. So they, they, there is real rejection yeah. there. But if we could make them in, in aware that they may be part of the puzzle, their own behavior is part of the puzzle, could that be enough of a motivation? Um, to help them have those kinds of reappraisals going into a situation in which they may actually be triggered. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an empirical question we're testing in the lab. Um, but we know that in general, people who are better in regulating their emotions, mm -hmm. even if they're sensitive, they are able to stop those um, overreactions and tend to have better uh, interpersonal outcomes in their life. Yeah, yeah. I have been trained as a cognitive behavior therapist, so I'm very familiar with reappraisals or cognitive restructuring. And over the last maybe 17, 18 years, I have been practicing acceptance and commitment therapy that, as you know, blends mindfulness and behaviorism. A core process or a core psychological skill that we teach our clients is called diffusion which is all about stepping back and watching their thoughts for what they are, letters and words put together, images that are popping up in their mind. And one of the exercises that we will encourage clients to do will be identifying their values when approaching a gathering or a social situation, and then checking with them if in the service of being the person they want to be in that gathering, they are willing to make room to accept, to open up to all those thoughts, to all those mental models and those anticipatory thoughts that their mind may tell them. The person may reject me. They are not going to like me. No one will ask me to dance with them and to still approach that situation. And the idea is that by people learning 
how it feels to be in that situation, how it's to approach something with openness that is going to be learning and life expansion. And I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts in terms of approaching a situation with an acceptance mindset or an acceptance skill that wherever I go, my mind will tell me all types of things, but I'm willing to behave differently versus doing reappraisal. Have you looked into that in terms of rejection sensitivity? We haven't. We haven't. Um, um, we have not. But I mean, I have a kind of like a parallel sibling line of research on self-distancing, which is very similar, yes. not, not to acceptance, but to the idea that, you know, step back, uh, you know, observe, observe yourself and kind of have a bigger um, um, picture in your mind, see the big picture, um, um, get out of your own kind of like egocentric point of view, etc. But I think kind of like having um, having that internal kind of mo- monologue. Yeah, I have these thoughts. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not controlled by them. That is in some ways distancing, right? You yeah. are saying there are my thoughts and there is my choice about who I want to be in the moment. So um, theoretically, I think it's, I, I see the similarities and I, I think it's it's another it's another way to approach the issue. Absolutely. It also meshes with what we know about kind of intellectual humility, you know, it's like accuracy motivations, like I just acknowledging that maybe there are other explanations. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was reading your research on self-distancing and how would you define self-distancing these days? Self-distancing is really a kind of like uh, getting out of your own egocentric point of view in your mind. It's a mental practice, right? Mm-hmm. And you can, there are, um, there are different techniques we have tested in the lab that allows you to do that. Uh, you could, um, you know, um, a lot of our experiences, emotional experiences are accompanied by visual imagery. Mm-hmm. So we manipulate the perspective the people adopt when they're imagining either either a past event that has already happened. They could take the perspective of a fly on the wall mm-hmm. and watch themselves uh-huh. in their mind's eye, or if they're like scared about something happening in the future, again they could see it from an observer perspective as opposed to it's happening to me. This is what it's going to feel like when it happens. Um, so that's one technique. Another technique we have um, um, studied quite a bit in the lab is called temporal distancing. You can imagine how your future self might feel about today's either successes or failures. So these strategies are not like valence specific. It's not just for negative emotions, it's for emotions. So if I had a huge success and then I imagined what does the success would would the success mean 20 years from now I'm like okay it's not a big deal so I'm not perhaps going to be as happy as joyous as proud of myself but the same thing holds for something negative I failed Mm -hmm. this class it feels like the end of the world for an undergraduate 
I know I'm <laughs> dealing with many of them. <laughs> and but 20 years from now, it's just one of the things that have that has happened to them in life, right? Mm -hmm. So it just doesn't feel as as big of a deal. Uh, and a third strategy that we have, or a technique um, that we have studied is um, called distant self-talk. So whether you refer to yourself, when you're talking to yourself, this isn't mm. in actual conversation. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. if you refer to yourself in the third person, when you're talking to somebody, <laughs> that's a whole different thing. That's, <laughs> that's different. That's different. Um, but if you think of yourself, is like I think of myself as she or Oz. That little switch, if it's very, it's it's a linguistic switch, but it comes with mental, um, a, a switch in the, your mental frame because third person pronouns and names are so strongly associated with other people, not with the self. So you're able to kind of trick your mind to think of yourself as if you're someone else because we have all had this experience that when it's our problem it's hard when it's our friend's problem we know what they have to do it's so much easier right to give them yes. advice so kind of that, that that's the that's the switch we're trying to to make by having people think of themselves as if they're someone else <laughs> that's why i also think that a kind of like a, a mirror image of that strategy is thinking of your own, like those thoughts, let's say the rumination, anxiety as something else. Like, you know, I have read it, a, a book a 10 years ago and I'm, I've been looking for it ever since. Maybe you would know this two um, male clinical psychologists had written this book about, I think, anxiety in boys. And I have two boys and my son was um, pretty anxious uh, during the periods I was trying to educate myself mm -hmm. where th their main strategy is they basically name the anxious person who is in them, mm. right? They give the anxious, the anxiety and those thoughts and feelings a name and they talk to that person. They say, I don't know, you know, um, 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 Mr. Freak. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then whenever they were like, oh, yes, Mr. Freak is here. I know I was expecting you because this is a situation in which Mr. Freak always shows up, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I think it's similar strategy. I've always wanted to test it in the lab, but too much, <laughs> too much is happening. So I think that could be another um, uh, technique that I know clinical psychologists use. I just don't know the literature or the practice enough to know what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Initially, people talk about externalizing the anxiety. It was coming from narrative therapy, when you just give it a name. Within acceptance and commitment therapy, within ACT, we talk a lot about the fusion and perspective taking. When I can notice a part of me that gets anxious and give it a name, like I may say, here comes Miss Anxious Patricia. Here comes Sassy Sassy Patricia. And then we have interventions related to perspective taking. Like I would say, if I were you and you were me, what would you be telling me today? If exactly. my best friend is next to me, what would my best friend tell me? By noticing that there is an observer of our life, right? I can step back and watch myself moving, talking, having this conversation with you. 
there is a part of me that is observing all of that. So there is a lot of exercises like that, very similar to self-distancing. If I can ask a little bit more about this, when you think about rejection sensitivity, are there times in which it's helpful to be very sensitive in certain contexts? This is a disposition um, that serves a function or it has evolved to serve a function. Um, and people who are sensitive to rejection care about relationships. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't, I don't have a whole lot of data, but some data that suggests that if you're rejection sensitive, but you're good in emotion regulation, you may be even better off in your relationships than someone who is not rejection sensitive because you're, mm. you know, if you're able to kind of curb the, the, the excesses or the mistakes that come with rejection sense, what you have is a sensitive person, right? Mm -hmm. Who cares about relationships, who cares about being accepted. And that can have certain um, uh, benefits. Yeah. Especially in, 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 in early childhood. Yeah, yeah. No, I can see that. I was just curious your take on that. My next question is coming definitely from practicing acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, within ACT, we understand that experiential avoidance is the driver of many psychological struggles, clinical struggles, and non-clinical struggles. Do you see any relationship between rejection sensitivity and experiential avoidance? As far as I know, yes. I mean, they they're more prone to drinking, substance use. These are all to kind of numb numb the self, to numb the pain, which mm -hmm. I would think falls into the experiential avoidance definition. Um, yes, yes, that is definitely one one strategy. But drawing from attachment theory, um, mm -hmm. I mean, rejection sensitivity is basically the core common core to avoidance and anxious attachment mm -hmm. but anxious and uh, avoidant attachment that framework is based on differentiating people on the secondary strategies they use to deal with that um, rejection sensitivity so anxious people say you know I'm going to attach myself to you so you you can't even physically leave me because I'm always going to be there I will never <laughs> let you go <laughs> And avoidant people say, oh, you know what? I am not ever going to rely on you. I, I'm not going to love anybody. If I don't love you, you can't hurt me. So, um, so there is definitely some rejection sensitive people who may be um, particularly prone to avoidance. That's mm -hmm. their way of dealing with it. And others um, who may be more in the seeking out, wanting to be the same with their loved one and, you know, basically overly approaching the object of their fear. That's right. That's right. Perhaps people engage in more reassurance behaviors. Do you love me? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Let's say that people listening to us, they want to check their struggling with rejection sensitivity. I know that there is that rejection sensitivity scale that has developed and you have used in many of your studies. What would be the cues that people need to look at to see if they're struggling with a proneness to rejection sensitivity that makes it harder for them to connect and to experience fulfilling relationships? Are there particular cues that you will invite them to observe? 
or the particular um, signs that a person can look at that says, yeah, I may be dealing with rejection sensitivity. The rejection sensitivity questionnaire is um, um, a vignette-based measure. And mm -hmm. the idea here is that this is a disposition, meaning people, there are individual, chronic individual differences um, in people's level of fear and expectations of rejection. But it's not like, you know, if I'm walking down the, down the street and looking for a nail salon that I am rejection sensitive and this basically is relevant to all aspects of my life, right? It mm -hmm. needs to be in a situation where rejection, my schema is actually applicable, yeah. right? Um, and we give the example of actually telemarketers, right? Mm -hmm. They may be expecting rejection because 99% of people, I think, hang up on them. That's, I, I don't know the actual statistic, but it's very high, I assume. But hopefully they're not rejecting sense because they don't care. There isn't that anxiety about, oh my God, am I gonna be rejected, right? So, um, I, so to the degree that people find themselves in these situations where kind of maybe rejection is, is Kind of applicable but it's an ambiguous situation so this disposition exerts its um, influence the most in ambiguous social situations right if there is a clear rejection everybody is going to react to rejection if there's clear acceptance fine but when it's in the gray zone is when we actually use our expectations and our beliefs about the world to fill in the gap so if they find themselves reaching this conclusion mm -hmm. repeatedly in situations in which that are in the gray zone, then maybe they do want to kind of um, stop and think, you know, maybe I am sensitive to rejection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In your experience, why some people develop rejection sensitivity and others not? I mean, it's coming from the theory that it's coming from early experiences, right? That are so formative, early caregiving experiences. But we also know from other research that it may be a combination of some temperamental qualities um, with uh, the parenting or caregiving environment. I don't mean to say it has to be the parents, but whoever was the attachment figure, caregivers uh, early in, in somebody's life. So kids who are born with a more kind of ne negative affectivity or inhibited temperament tendencies, um, shy, introverted, they may be more impacted by the caregiving environment. So it mm -hmm. magnifies. Um, versus a, a child who is um, actually high in positive emotions, uh, extroverted, they may be buffered, they may be less influenced by the insensitivity of the parents. So I think it's a combination mm -hmm. uh, in, 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 in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, the combination of temperament and upbringing. Temperament, yeah, being yeah. prone to rumination, negative emotions. And then having a a maybe insensitive, neglect neglectful, you know, caregiving environment when combined is really um, the the mechanism that leads to high rejection sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious your thoughts on the construct of rejection sensitivity dysphoria. 
I'm just curious, what is your take, given that you have been studying rejection sensitivity for quite a while? I don't know that that construct. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, um, can you explain it to me, what the dysphoria adds? Like, what is the dysphoria part? Yeah, I wish I can explain it, but I don't think I'm the right person, actually, to explain it. It seems to be a new construct. Um, I think that when I think about rejection sensitivity in the work I do, I have certainly witnessed what you are describing. Some people, they do have the proneness to respond with a high sense of threat to the possibility of being rejected, and they engage in safety behaviors subtle avoidance or full avoidance behaviors, which perpetuate the the perception Mm -hmm. they're having about themselves, right? Mm -hmm. It's quite painful, actually, because like you, I see that behind those behaviors, there is a value of connection and experiencing love and beloved. But if they don't catch when they are getting triggered and they respond automatically, I think they prepare themselves for more rejection. In terms of ADHD, I mean, I... Um, can tell you that even though I haven't done this research myself, but I um, have um, had conversation with Di Pinsha, who is um, mm-hmm. an expert in ADHD and is a colleague of mine at um, Berkeley, that um, kids who are either on the spectrum or have ADHD, any kind of you know other primary problem, because they're rejected by their peers because mm-hmm. of their conditions they also i mean rejection sensitivity develops it that may be a different kind of rejection sensitivity in the sense that it's really like peer and social rejection rather than a necessarily rejection in the home environment mm-hmm. which may also be happening you know mm-hmm. but um even if like the parents were the most loving parents and most accommodating in the um, in peer interactions or interactions with people outside of, of, of the home environment, because of their um, you know difficulties in these other domains, they may actually get rejected and therefore develop rejection. So then it they co-occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if that is what is meant by rejection sensitive dysphoria. Yes, I think it is. It is. Um, it is a thing, both empirically and from what I hear from my uh, clinical colleagues. I see. I see. That's very helpful to hear. Thank you. And I know we're running out of time, so I have one last question. If it's mm-hmm. okay, if you were to have a cup of coffee or tea with any person you want today, who would that be, and why? Who would I want to have coffee or tea? Or a scotch or a beer. <laughs> I, um, among among the people that I know, or anyone, anyone, I'll have it with my husband, who's my best friend. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely! <laughs> that's lovely. Thank you so much for joining me on this conversation. Very much appreciate all the work you have been doing over the years on projection sensitivity, emotional regulation, self-distancing. And I really hope that I can bring you back on the podcast in a couple of months. (laughs) Thank you so much for having invited me and being patient with my schedule. Of course, of course. I know we have busy lives. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you so much again. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingwithsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing with safe actions. See you soon!